Hello and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast shining a light on developers' lives from all over the world. My name is Tim Bourguignon, and today I receive Barry Dorrance. Barry is the .NET security person at Microsoft. I've even read that you are the security curmudgeon. I, you will have to tell us what that means. Um, Barry has over 20 years of experience specializing in C-Sharp, ASP.NET, and all aspects of .NET security. Barry has been involved in major website development, the production of numerous security-related proof-of-concepts for Microsoft and the UK government. He's also the author of Beginning ASP.NET Secure Development and was a frequent Microsoft MVP recipient before joining Microsoft. Barry, welcome to Dev Journey. Thank you very much for having me. So you, you don't know what a curmudgeon is. No. Is this a British word? It is a very British word. It is a, uh, okay. It's a grumpy old man. Someone that is grumpy and angry at pretty much everything, which is (laughs) a T. The sort of person that shook their fist and thought Brexit was a good idea is probably a although I don't, it's probably a curmudgeon. People that shout at children playing on the grass. that That's the sort of thing <laughs> we're aiming for here. Some, someone that's unhappy with the world, and I'm generally unhappy with the world because the world is insecure. So you're shouting at developers who are um, playing on the grass. Yes, very, very much so. Get off that grass. It's not hashed and salted properly. <laughs> It's it's very uh, fitting. I'm right now. I'm I'm reading the book uh, Blackout from uh, from an Austrian um, uh, author, and it's the story of what if people hacked into um, into the security uh, services of our um, electricity infrastructure and basically turned off electricity for all Europe and and a bit more. And this is this would make you mad. I would say. Ah, yeah, the the Mark Ellsberg one. Absolutely, I've I've heard about it. Would it make me mad because the security's not there, or because the way he discusses it just isn't correct? It's one of the two. I, I, no, I think it's pretty correct, but the security is non-existent. Yeah, that's that's probably pretty correct too. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's hard to remain stoic while listening to it. So I would understand. Um, what you live on a day-to-day basis being a security expert in our modern world. But I guess we have to uh, to roll back a little and see um, how you came to being there in the first place. Do you want to tell us this story? I I, I was thinking about this this morning. So um, I guess what listeners have to realize is that in 2019, in fact, in about a month and a half, I will be 49. So that puts me... Um, a lot older than most of the young kids these days that swap JavaScript frameworks every day um, to try and keep up with things. So when I started, it was um, in school because that's where computers were. Um, My parents were not well off. Uh, My dad was a builder. My mom was a secretary. And so the first computer I encountered was this large black and chrome 
box that sat underneath a black and white television, because that's right, kids, at the time, television did not have color, let alone high definition, and it used 8-inch hard-sectored floppy drives. It was published by Research Machines. I cannot remember the model. And at the age of 12 or 13, our headmaster took an introduction to computers class. And he basically read down the instructions every day and then got confused when the programs that he wrote did not work. And I sat and I watched because there was not enough hardware for everyone. You would perhaps get a turn about once a month. And every time the programs failed, I I, I seethed more and more. And so I asked if I could read the manual, Um, probably the last time I ever read a manual. And he, he gave me the manual. And then before each lesson, we'd actually end up going through the code and try and figure out where the code broke. So between our headmaster and myself, we taught each other a little bit. And that was my first introduction to computing. Well, how old were you at the time? Um, 12 or 13, so 1982, 1983. There were no computers available before that, unlike now where you're going into school and there are iPads or Chromebooks absolutely everywhere. This was the first time I had really even seen a computer. And then maybe three, four years later, suddenly there were um, BBC Micros, Um, The BBC started putting together um, both a computer, uh, which was produced by um, Acorn, and a bunch of teaching programs that were shown every week. And schools got these things at a discount that was paid for by the government. And suddenly there was a computer lab with lots of computers. And you could go in and you you could um, take now a five and a quarter inch floppy uh, coming down from the eight inches and you could teach yourself and you you started learning yourselves and the manuals were available and these programs were available and every week something would be on tv showing you something new and showing you how to code something new i mean there were formal lessons as well but at that point i was already not particularly paying attention to people who knew more than me and i just taught myself and bumbled <laughs> along what was so interesting to you at the time I think it's the fact that, in theory, I could make the computer do what I wanted it to do, whereas making people do what you want to do is a lot harder and generally frowned upon by society. (laughs) That's very true. Yes. I mean, of course, we both know that trying to get a computer to do what you want it to do has become less and less likely as computers have become more and more powerful. But when it was a lot simpler when you were coding things in BASIC and you had uh, 16K in which to program, there was less scope for things to go wrong because it could only do so many things. Mm -hmm. I guess your expectations were uh, drizzled down as well. I don't know if that's true. I think my my expectations were the maximum they could be for the technology at the time. And then as technology has improved, obviously your expectations go up with it. But they weren't hampered. That I wanted it to be the best that it could be. I, I wanted to see, you know, lots of vector graphics. I wanted it to to make the same sorts of noise that the 
the original Battlestar Galactica made when they're when the the fire uh, ships shot down the tube because that's the sort of technology we were talking about. And you are limited by the technology at the time, but your expects your expectations are not limited because what you have in front of you is the best that it can be. You're right. That's what makes security hard. Your expectations are that hopefully everyone will get it right. And then every day you get proved wrong by some newspaper report or another where another company has leaked all your information or your social security number has gone out or people have reused passwords and a corporate Twitter account has been taken over to hilarious or offensive results. Because now now security isn't just a matter of computing power. It's also a matter of people. And like I say, getting people to do what you want uh, and forcing them to do what you want is uh, more complicated than it appears and sometimes not what mm-hmm. people want to do. You said you would expect people to, to get it right. Um Do we really expect people to get it right? I mean, the world is getting more complex every day for for developers. Um, how do how do we help them make it right? In for instance, in a security context. Yeah, I, I think expect is probably the wrong word. I think hope might be more be more accurate. <laughs> And it's going to depend on the person that you target. So, for example, I have all my email in my own uh, Office 365 subscription. So that has my own Azure AD connected to it. I also host my parents' emails. And whilst I can enforce two-factor authentication for my mother to a certain extent, enforcing it for my dad is more difficult because he doesn't understand the need and he doesn't understand why he's blocked from checking his email. So generally, he gives it to my mother and says, fix this, uh, which is great because she can. But different people have different expectations. I've set up two-factor authentication on my mother's phone with an application. Um, but a f- couple of years ago, the um, American – oh, now I have to try and remember the the right department because I still haven't been here long enough to remember these things. The American Social Security Folks, the people that look after the uh, small pension that America gives you or your uh, disability pay decided to add two-factor authentication to their website. So they added it by text message. And most security professionals will tell you that authentication via text message is not secure and should be avoided. But if you think about the vast majority of people who have pensions in the United States, They may not have a computer at all, and they're certainly less likely to have a smartphone. So you can't give them the most secure option by default. You you can't force it on them because it may lock a bunch of users out. So every user has different expectations and different abilities, and blaming security breaches on the user isn't fair And I think, and I've done it myself, I'm sure, I'm sure I have. Uh, I'm sure someone will find me blaming users on Twitter and victim blaming, but it's not fair. It's up to us as an industry to help make things 
easier and safer by default and to guide people down a safe line rather than uh, throw them into a pit of failure. And that goes further. That goes further into things like API design. So, you know, I concern myself with the way that the .NET framework and .NET Core present APIs to users. Now, a lot of times we are constrained in what we can do because of backwards compatibility. But when we write new features, it should be easy. It should be the default that those features are secure by default without needing any thought or input from a developer. API design can be a security concern, and that's something a lot of developers, unfortunately, ignore. Are you involved early enough in the discussions to um, to be able to steer this discussion? Um, uh... To be honest, it will depend on the API. Uh, some things will slip past me, but will get picked up by other colleagues uh, who are security-focused, and that's great. Sometimes I own the entire area. Um, Certainly, a lot of the ASP.NET security stuff ends up in my lap because I sit in the same room as the ASP.NET people. But there, you know, I have to rely on uh, developers knowing that something may have security concerns and tagging me. Otherwise, I find out later than I like, and then there are interesting discussions of, wait, no, this needs to be redesigned versus, well, we've committed to it now. Because at the end of the day, you know, you can try and make things secure, but people above you may go, okay, that the cost for that is too great, and we accept the risk. As much as I would like to get my way all the time, it doesn't happen. There are various reasons it doesn't happen. Back compat, cost, uh, it just doesn't make sense from a business point of view right now. These things happen, and you just have to accept it. That's probably the most depressing part of the job where it's like, I want to fix absolutely everything, but I can't. I have similar discussions with our company. Um, um, I don't know what to say, a security person right now. Our company used to be very small. We, we used to be 30 persons and we grew of oh, the, the past uh, few years to, to almost a hundred now. And we are facing those kind of challenges where now we have somebody um, that is taking care of, uh, of security and stuff like this. And involving this person early enough in, in every part of the process is, is awful. It's, is really, um, something we have to, to remember ourselves to do. Um, not awful from, from, uh, the perspective of this, uh, of involving the person, but remembering ourselves to involve this person and that, that he, he should be, um, involved early enough is really, really hard to get in, uh, in our brains. So I would understand in the, in the security context, developing .NET, which will be a framework used by millions of developers. Um, that is kind of a scary thought. I think it's, I, I trust that I, I trust everyone here um, to actually know that what they do impacts others. I mean, there are a bunch of things that never, ever need my input because it doesn't touch security. Um, everyone knows, you know, if they're going to touch the cryptography stack, they're going to have to come talk to me. If you want to do authentication or authorization or weird file formats, you come talk to me. But a, a good example of this is binary formatter. Binary formatter has long been known to be insecure for use with trusted input. We have been saying this for probably 10 years now. It's not just a problem with .NET. Java has the same problem. Um, the Apache struts vulnerabilities that hand remote code execution were around 
this sort of unconstrained serialization, deserialization. And in uh, .NET Core 1, we removed it. Much to the annoyance of an awful lot of customers who were using it and wanted to move to .NET Core. So in .NET Core 2.0, it came back with a bunch of warnings saying, don't use this with untrusted input. And we can't help you beyond that. We've told you it's bad. We've told you that you can, you know, you can uh, shoot yourself in the foot with this. But if you choose to use it and you shoot yourself in the foot, we can't be prescriptive enough to say no. We have to empower you to do what you need to do. And sometimes what you need to do is something silly from a security perspective. I can't hold your hand all the way to the end, unfortunately. Some responsibility will always lie with the user of an API. But this is part of the framework that you identified um, being potentially dangerous. Um, How about dealing with the things that you didn't really identify yet? Are there such cases? There must be, right? I am pretty sure there are an awful lot of cases. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Patch Tuesday. Patch Tuesday is <laughs> yes. Patch Tuesday is the result of us, fi- of us finding, preferably, or someone else finding security bugs and us having a patch. I am not going to lie to anyone and say um, the .NET framework is 100% secure. And anything you write in it will never get breached. That's pretty much a lie. Sometimes, in fact, most times, I I would probably say now, the breach is down to what you've done with it rather than the framework itself. But there are always going to be bugs in the framework or bugs in our templates where someone's made a a spelling mistake or, or messed up how a form posts when it should have been a get or vice versa. These things happen. That's that's why we have patches, and it's it's what gives me uh, stomach upsets um, this this time of of month because it's Patch Tuesday tomorrow as we um, record that. Although there's there's nothing .NET going out tomorrow, so that, this is actually a nice relaxed month for me. But these things happen. These things happen where I get you know emails sent to me while I'm on honeymoon that I have to answer or emails sent to me at the weekend from VPs where I have to like tell my wife, okay, we're going to delay going out for dinner a bit. Uh, she's very understanding about this. I think that's probably a good thing. If you want to go into security, find an understanding partner who realizes that security probably will come first more than they will an awful lot of the time. How much of your time is spent hunting those um, vulnerabilities that you don't know yet. So really trying to explore um, the existing code and try to find new stuff uh, versus trying to, to uh, polish the existing, um, the existing flow that you are um, um, uh, giving out to the users to make them fall into the pit of success. So make it even easier to not make the, the silly, um, silly, easier mistakes. So I think I think in my case a lot of it is is flow design, but you have to remember that I'm really a PM uh, rather than a developer. So I basically say make this better and rely on everyone else to do the real work, which is a wonderful position to be in. Mm. For for feature design, um, the things that you see on screen in ASP.NET templates, then I'm responsible for looking at the flow 
And then the implementation gets written in and I look at the implementation and go, that's not what I had expected. And there's a bit of a negotiation to try and tighten things up. I don't tend to hunt for bugs in existing code. Uh, That tends to get driven either by uh, one of the developers' curiosity or if we've had a bug report, we go looking for other things that might match that sort of approach. So we do what's called variant analysis where we'll get a bug in one area and we'll go, okay, but that could also apply here, 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 and here. So the developers will go off and do that. And then I generally tend to summarize the results and go beat people up and say, okay, we need the resources to fix this. Please allocate these resources and cancel something else. And I'd like to have it done within X amount of weeks. No, it make, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I, I would like to, uh, to, um, scroll back a little, um, if you don't mind. How did you end up in security in the first place? So after the after the the, the five and a quarter inch floppies um, and the BBC Micro, my parents saved up, and I'm sure it must have been ridiculously expensive for them. And they got me um, a ZX Spectrum, as it was called in Europe. Uh, I think it was the Timex Sinclair for US listeners. It had this little rubber keyboard that. Um, people described as, as, as feeling like dead flesh and that was me at home and everything was still in basic at that point in time and you would save things to a tape drive so from there I kind of figured that this was where I wanted to be I don't think after about the age of 14 I don't think I ever had any other job in mind but I wasn't particularly disciplined in school and I never had good luck with exams. So I could study, and then as soon as I sat down and saw an exam paper in front of me, everything went out of my head. So my exam results were not, they were not great. Um, I managed to get into um, a polytechnic when they still existed. So those were the more vocational higher education establishments, and I went uh, from Northern Ireland to Liverpool. And during the first year at that polytechnic, they taught Pascal and COBOL. Now, this was 1988. COBOL was was not a good language to learn unless you wanted to go work for an insurance firm. And after that year, I was utterly sick of education. So I abandoned it which probably was the stupidest thing I've ever done. I abandoned it and I went home and I started looking for a job. And because Northern Ireland was a region with very high unemployment, there was an awful lot of government money and, in fact, EU money pumped into it to give uh, young people jobs in areas that they wanted. So I managed to get onto one of those schemes and I joined a local firm basically as their computer dog's body. So it was support for uh, people using PCs who were writing like word processing documents or support for IBM terminals plugged into an IBM mini computer that were driving the manufacturing line. And an opportunity came up to try and print out barcode labels for the products that we were producing And so I don't even know how it fell to me. I think my ego said, I can do this. Why didn't you give me a shot? The only developers in the company were developers for the mainframes. There were no PC developers, but the 
printer would only plug into a PC. So I had to get this PC to talk to the mainframe and parse the results of a mainframe and then format them correctly and send it to a printer to print out a barcode. And my ego thought I can do this really quickly. The actuality of it was it took me like three and a half months to figure out. We had an expansion card that plugged into the token ring network where I could see the mainframe's hard drive as just another drive on the PC. I had a bunch of quick basic that would then take that comma delimited file and parse through it every night because there were like two or 300 entries. And that's how long it would take to parse because this was an IBM XT and then send the right commands to a laser jet printer that had special commands to print out barcodes. And it was done. And that was my first programming job that I fitted around also trying to support a network and lay new network cables and get Novell Netware Lite installed. And then basically once that placement was up, I moved to England and I laid my way into a programming job. I said I had way more experience than I did. It was a programming job for a C um, a, a C program. I basically bought Kernigan and Ritchie three days beforehand. I read through it and I completely <laughs> I, I lied my way into saying that I knew enough C to be productive. And it turns out that probably about four or five weeks later, I was lucky enough to have had a patient mentor at that company who let me learn and let me get productive and away it went. Cool. But no formal education. And I think that that was my biggest mistake. I probably should have stuck with it and learned a bit more about the basics. Well, you ended up um, at a pretty decent place, I think. So I'm not sure that uh, that was a mistake in the first place. Yes. I think it would have been easier for me to get here if I had um, some sort of basis in computer science. I had applied to Microsoft seven or eight times in the course of four years and to get to the, the, the first job I had at Microsoft, it was almost pulling strings. I was over for uh, the Microsoft Value Professional Summit, and I knew a couple of people who had jobs that I thought I could do. And I emailed them the first day of the summit saying, hey, I'm actually over here. Why don't I come sit in your office and I'll interview for this? <laughs> and two of them said, Sure. Okay. If you're over and I don't have to pay your flight, fine. And my response was, sure. You just have to pay the pay the the cost to change the flight. And they're like, okay, we can do that. So I, yeah, I might have bullied myself in here as well, along with um, demonstrating some sort of skill at least this time. I can remember one of the guys interviewing me for the um, the first job I had. And he said, okay, so you know .NET? And I'm like, yes, which I did. That wasn't a lie. He said, okay, so we're going to spend this hour talking about um, intermediate language, the thing that .NET produces before it then compiles all the way down. And I went, that's great, but it'll be a really short conversation. So <laughs> because I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. I think maybe that honesty might have been appreciated. I know when I've interviewed people, Honesty about what you don't know is appreciated probably more than showing what you do. Because if you're at that honesty level and then you can follow up with, but 
let's see if I can get there and start from some sort of best principles and see how far you can get. That sort of thing is is very interesting, at least to me, on the rare occasions that I interview people. It is indeed. So that, that was the, your first um, your first time applying for Microsoft, was it? No, that would have been probably about uh, number six or number seven. Oh, okay. I applied for a bunch of roles in Microsoft UK, and then I was over in Seattle, and I'm like, okay, I know you people have jobs open. I find a couple of people and went, please let me interview that for this whilst I'm here. But I had been turned, by, turned down by Microsoft UK on numerous occasions, and I think they were probably correct in turning me down for the roles that they turned me down for. It was things like what is now considered a developer advocate. So you go out and you talk to customers and try and show them how to use .NET correctly or to the, you know, it, in the best way that they can. And my, um, I think the phrase someone used was, I don't suffer fools gladly. So putting me in that sort of role probably would have been a mistake because people might have been told exactly what I thought of them, <laughs> uh, which still happens upon occasion, but normally it's for internal people or um, fellow British people on Twitter because we like insulting each other. That just seems to be the right way to go about things, but probably not a, a customer a customer facing um, good experience. <laughs> That's the core merchant again. That, that that very probably is yes. <laughs> um, what attracts attracted or, or still attracts you um, that much about Microsoft that you applied um, that many times? For I think what, what what still keeps me going now is that if I can secure if I can keep improving security on .NET, I am securing not just developers but their users. It's. It's very hard outside of, say, Microsoft, Google, or Apple to find a security role that has this much impact, that touches this many people, that helps this many people, even if they never, ever see it. The scope to, to help is enormous. Of course, the scope to damage is also enormous, which is the sort of thing that keeps you up at night. But when you get it right and you know that, you know, this little tweak that we've made to .NET is probably going to secure every single .NET um, program out there. And goodness knows how many of those there are. And then there's the users on top of that. That's an awful lot of people you can help be secure. That is indeed. That is indeed. That's a very, a very interesting, uh, interesting answer. That's true. That's true. Unfortunately, our time box is, is running away from us. Um, we don't have that much time left. So what I have to, to ask, I would like to ask you one, uh, one last question. Um, you already said that, that you would probably advise yourself to, uh, to finish your degree and, and get some formal education. So I won't ask you that. Um, if you were hiring today and, um, or you had a new hire on your side, what would be the, the advice you would give those, um, this new hire? Oh, okay. So let's say if, if, if the hire was, was a security person, I think no one is ever going to know everything. It's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to remain wrong. If, if people can demonstrate to you that you're wrong, you need to learn from that and not just say, wait, no, no, this is the way I was taught or this is the way that I learned. 
or this is the way that it was five years ago. If we look at, for example, cryptography, 10 years ago, we were told that using the MD5 algorithm for hashing was fine. It is demonstrably broken. The same with SHA-1. Security and cryptography move on. You have to keep learning. You can't just do something because that's the way it's always been. And you have to find a way to express that to other people in such a way that they won't reject it out of hand. Something that, if I'm honest, I'm pretty poor at because a lot of the time I go, okay, no, you need to do it this way. And then there are times I will forget to follow up with why. And the why is the important part in convincing people. Uh, the, the nice thing here at Microsoft is people are used to me forgetting and they'll just reply with going, but why? And then I went, oh, yeah, okay, I've forgotten that bit. But a lot of times people will not have that patience with you. It's up to you to remember to explain not just that something is wrong, but why it's wrong. And to educate and to teach and make sure that you're also doing that with yourself and you're keeping up with the latest trends and the latest standards and basically what changes because it's just permanently changing. Very insightful. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Um, if the listeners wanted to uh, to ask you why in person, where where should they go and uh, and ask that? Uh, right now, I only have one thing. I have um, InfoShare in uh, Gdansk, which for the American listeners is Poland, because I know your geography is awful. Uh, I try and ask my wife where places are in Europe, and the answers are usually hilarious. Uh, that's that's on May the 8th, May the 9th, and um, hopefully I, I believe I'm going to end up talking about some security bugs that have caused MSRC cases and how you might still have them in your own implementations of code. But generally, it's I, I do developer conferences rather than security conferences because securing developers is basically where I want to be. Mm -hmm. So if you're in Poland in May, I think it is? Yes, May the ooh, May the um, 8th and 9th. Okay, so if you're in Poland in May on the 8th and 9th um, and I go to this conference, then you can get Barry in real life and get to ask him why and how he ended up at Microsoft or how the first interviews went because uh, we didn't have time to discuss about that. <laughs> um, if um, And if people want to... Uh, to tag along on internet uh, would twitter be um the right place to go yes i think if you although if you look at my twitter feed it's probably about 10% information security 15% dog pictures and then the rest is basically insulting my friends and talking about pineapple on pizza <laughs> uh, but you could certainly there's also lots of swearing um you can certainly feel free to to follow me on twitter it's at blowdart b l o w d a r t Then I will add that to the show notes. Thank you very much, Barry. It has been very insightful. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And this has been another episode of Developer's Journey. And we'll see each other in two weeks. Bye-bye. Listener, if you haven't subscribed yet, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and much more. Head over to www.devjourney.info to read the show notes, 
find all the links mentioned during the episode and of course links to the podcast on all those platforms. Don't miss the next developer's journey story by subscribing to the podcast with the app of your choice right now. And if you like what we do, please rate the podcast, write a comment on those platforms and promote the podcast on social media. This really helps fellow developers discover the podcast and those fantastic journeys. Thank you.